his characteristic means of how he works with his people, is repeated again in his Messiah. Um, also, there's what's known as applicational fulfillment, which is that a theological application of verses uh, takes place. Now, these, just like typical, aren't necessarily explicit prophecies. Instead, a theological principle is taken up and shown how it's fulfilled the Messiah. For example, like in Matthew's Gospel, again, where um, the, uh, the, the slaughter that took place of the youth of um, Bethlehem, showing... Uh, that this was referred on as Rachel weeping for her children, there's nothing within that passage that talks about, you know, this is pertinent to the Messiah. Instead, there's a theological application of when the people of Israel are taken, um, you know, into exile, much like how Jesus was taken away into Egypt, uh, the, the daughters of Jerusalem will be lamenting the loss of their children. That's exactly what was taking place here. Uh, much in the same way how during the Babylonian captivity, you know, it says that Rachel weeped for the loss of her children. Um, when Jesus was taken to Egypt and the youth that remained were killed, Rachel was lamenting as a result. That's a theological application of that verse. And much like the typical fulfillment, it's the pattern that's being repeated again. Finally, there's what's known as summary fulfillment, which is that it's not a particular prophet or prophecy per se that's cited, but instead a commonly used motif that's referenced again and again throughout the um, Old Testament that's being utilized in the New. This is also uh, mentioned in Matthew's Gospel, for example, where it says the Messiah was from Nazareth. He says, as a direct citation, um, this is what the prophet said, that he will be born in Nazarene. The problem with that is that if you look through the Old Testament, there is no specific verse that says the Messiah would come from Nazareth. However, the answer to this, uh, this dilemma is found in the language that Matthew uses. He says, this is not what the prophets said, but what the prophets said, that he will hail from Nazareth. Now, he's using the term not so much to mean geographical descent, but as one as a term of derision. We know, for example, Nazareth was a town of uh, ill repute. Uh, for example, in John's Gospel, when uh, Nathaniel's told that the Messiah is coming from Nazareth, he asks the rhetorical question, um, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So this was kind of like saying that, you know, somebody was from the wrong side of the tracks. They were from, you know, the bad part of town, so to speak. And they're using it in a derogatory way to Jesus. Well, this motif of, for example, the Messiah being somebody who was despised or somebody that was, you know, uh, considered less than nothing amongst his contemporaries. We find this, for example, in Isaiah, you know, that there was nothing comely about his parents. There was nothing about him that we should be drawn to him. Uh, he's the cornerstone that the, the builders rejected uh, throughout the Psalms, all the lamenting ones, like in Psalm 22. The Messiah is this despised figure. He's not accepted amongst his own people. Uh, this motif that occurs again and again throughout the Old Testament is brought up and said by Matthew, hey, this is fulfilled in what the prophet said. He's from Nazareth, meaning like not necessarily where he geographically descends from, but that he's somebody who's considered uh, despised amongst his kinsmen. So these are some methods of how the New Testament uses the Old, and we'll be looking more clearly at a few particulars as we progress through our study. In addition to looking at our presuppositions, we're going to be going through some common objections that take place whenever uh, prophecy is referenced as an evidence for the Messiahship of Jesus. Some examples of these are, for example, uh, these prophecies um, are not provable. For example, there are certain ones, like uh, if you said, you know, the Messiah, uh, like John referencing, you know, he didn't have his bones broken, and so he's like the Passover lamb. Uh, during his crucifixion, they didn't break his legs, therefore, you know, he's 
he's a fulfillment of, of you know, the typology of the lamb, somebody can say back, well, you can't prove that. You can't prove that his legs weren't broken. So that'd be one example of a, a defeater, an objection. Uh, some will say, for example, the fulfillments were forged after the fact. For example, instead of saying that the prediction was written and then hundreds of years later there was a fulfillment, somebody will say, hey, these documents were forged after the fact. There was an event that happened and somebody wrote a prophecy to make it look like it was fulfilled. Kind of like if somebody was, you know, pretending to shoot bullseyes. Instead of having a bullseye already painted, they shoot an arrow. Instead of that, they shoot an arrow and then paint a bullseye around it. That's what they're saying took place with the fulfillment and the um, prophecy. The cart went before the horse. Um, some will say that, for example, the fulfillments were merely intentional. Like, for example, in Zechariah, where it says the, uh, uh, the king of Israel would come lowly on a donkey coming into Jerusalem. Well, that can just be merely intentional, somebody will say. They'll say, you know, if you give me the plane ticket right now, we could go to Israel. I could get on a donkey and ride into Jerusalem. Anybody could fulfill this. It's merely intentional. Um, they could say that the prob- fulfillments are not improbable. Like, for example, um, there's, a, you know, the prophecy given to Abraham that his, you know, descendant would be the one that would bring the blessings to the nations. Well, you know, uh this is not necessarily improbable given the fact that anybody of Jewish descent could fulfill this criteria. So therefore, somebody will say, hey, you know, any Jew, anybody who's of Jewish descent can fulfill this expectation. Anybody can fulfill that candidacy. Um, in addition to this, there's also an objection that, for example, prophecy is, is not messianic. Somebody will say, well, that Old Testament verse does not apply to Messiah, so therefore it can't be used as a biblical prophecy. And finally, you know, there's just the general, this prophecy was just an educated or lucky guess. Maybe they just so happen, you know, to fulfill it un, unintentionally, that the odds are that, you know, um, Jesus just so happened to live a life to where these things got fulfilled. It's not really that um, improbable. It just was a mere luck of the draw. So we're going to be going through and so, showing why these objections don't apply to these particular prophecies. <clears throat> So the first of the five clusters of prophecies we're going to be looking at are those pertinent towards the second temple and the timing of the coming of the Messiah. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, the second temple was constructed after Israel came back from Babylonian captivity. Um, it wasn't as glorious as the first temple that had been constructed by Solomon, but it was built and after the return from exile and was destroyed in 70 AD during the Roman-Jewish War by Titus, a general that came seized Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple. In fact, uh, in the four Gospels, uh, we have predictions by Jesus of this temple being destroyed. And uh, archaeologically, we actually have, you know, the clear evidence that it had been destroyed. The only thing that exists left was the Wailing Wall. We actually have an arch that's dedicated to Titus that shows Roman soldiers pulling the temple furniture out and collecting it as the spoils of war. And that arch was uh, dedicated to Titus's triumph during the Roman-Jewish War. So we have this incontrovertible event of the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD. It definitely happened, and we know for a fact that while it was standing, um, you know, there was much talk about, uh, for example, from Jesus about it being destroyed. Well, there's a lot of Old Testament messianic expectations that's very pertinent towards the Temple and the coming of the Messiah. For example, in Malachi 5, 1 through, through, sorry, Malachi 3, 1 through 5, uh, it's prophesied that the Lord himself would visit the temple. And this is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Luke. Um, in Haggai 2, 6 through 9, uh, God promises that he would fill the temple with glory. 
now, glory can refer to just typical abundance or riches or whatnot, but when it's used in context of, for example, God filling the temple with glory, that's referring to his divine presence, the Shekinah, that he would actually be present within his temple. And in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, Daniel is receiving a uh, vision from the angel Gabriel, and he's praying you know, for the return of the exiled people because he's still in Babylonian captivity. And the vision that he's given, it tells him that the people of Israel not only will be restored, but there's going to be much happening within the next few years. Uh, there is, uh, within this 490-year time frame that's given to Daniel, all these different prophecies and expectations that are going to be fulfilled. Finally, and those will end with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Well, in between the rebuilding of Jerusalem and then the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, there are certain things that are described for Israel to do. Uh, one of them being they must bring in everlasting righteousness, that final atonement has to be made, that there has to be anointing of the most holy place, that uh, the fulfillment of, of transgressions must be uh, taken. There's six expectations. All these things have to be fulfilled um, within this time frame. Now, the passages from Malachi, Haggai, and Daniel have all three have one thing in common. All three passages have one thing in common. They have to be fulfilled before the second temple is destroyed. The Lord can't visit the temple if it doesn't exist anymore. And atonement has to be made, obviously, while the temple is still standing, as it says in Daniel. There's no way, for example, that uh, these could happen after the fact. They all are very clear, have to take place prior to the second temple being destroyed. Now, here's the, the dilemma that uh, one is faced with. Either A, these prophecies were never fulfilled, they never happened, that the Old Testament isn't true because these prophecies remain unfulfilled and therefore can never be fulfilled because the second temple was destroyed, or B, that Jesus himself fulfilled them. He was, and the person of the Lord was with him. Uh, he was the Lord who visited the temple. He was the glory that was visited the temple prior to his destruction. And his death was the means by which everlasting righteousness and atonement was made, um, as described in Daniel 9. So we're left with this dilemma of, of either Jesus is the candidate, the only candidate, there's no other rivals who fulfilled these prophecies, or nobody else ever did and nobody else ever can. So this is our first line of evidence, is showing that based on this timetable that's presented throughout the prophets, Jesus has to be the one to fulfill these prophecies. In addition to this, not only are there time-related prophecies that can only be fulfilled before the Second Temple and have only been fulfilled by Jesus, there's also things pertinent towards his genealogy. For example, um, we know from the from Genesis and like Second Samuel seven, like in uh, Genesis uh, chapter forty nine, that the Messiah would descend from the tribe of Judah. In Second Samuel seven, there's the promise that the, the Davidic lineage that uh, the Messiah would hail you know, from him, that there would be the, the greater son of David. Now, here's the thing. Genealogies would be the only way to be able to verify if somebody was of Davidic uh, descent. And guess where the genealogies of the ancient world were kept, where the ancient Jewish people kept their genealogies? It was in the temple. And after the temple was destroyed, those were all lost. Um, after Jerusalem was leveled, there was no way to be able to verify what lineage anybody had since all those records were completely destroyed. So this, like the time-related prophecies, 
this one could only have been verified. These expectations about certain genealogical descent could only be verified during the Second Temple period. After 70, any chance of identifying Messiah is gone. Even if somehow the Messiah showed up today, we'd never be able to verify or know because we could not verify his lineage. However, in Jesus' day, it was very clear he had Davidic descent. Um, it's mentioned again and again throughout the entire New Testament that he is a descendant of David. Not only this, but this claim went unchallenged by the Jew. Uh, the Jewish rivals of the Christian faith. Uh, in the Talmud and then also in the interactions of the Gospels, his divinic lineage is never questioned. So Jesus showed up not only to fulfill the time-based prophecies that could only be fulfilled in that time frame, but also the ones to which they could only be verified in that time frame as well. Interestingly, this principle about uh, temple and timing has some extra-biblical confirmation in as well. Uh, the Talmud agrees that the Messianic era actually passed. And uh, within citations of uh, the Talmud, like in Rosh Hashanah 31b and uh, Yoma 39b, uh, there's a number of signs, for example, that took place within the temple that stopped taking place during the last 40 years it was standing. So from 30 AD to 70 AD, things like, for example, the Western light would not keep burning, the lot on the right hand of the high priest for the goat to be sacrificed wouldn't appear, and then things like, for example, the crimson cloth placed on Yom Kippur would not turn white. Now, this comes from the Talmud. This is not a Christian work. In fact, it's a, a fairly uh, anti-Christian polemical piece uh, that has certain things like, for example, that uh, Jesus was a sorcerer who led Israel astray and that Christians were practicers of, of magic and they were apostates. So this is clearly not a Christian bias piece of literature, but instead it's actually agreeing with the fact that uh, the Second Temple, uh, or up to the Second Temple, the last 40 years, uh, that there was no sign that the sacrifices um, that were uh, placed in the temple were actually accepted by God. This is extra-biblical confirmation that the atonement, which was taking place by the sacrifices, had stopped at the exact same time that Jesus was crucified, that his atonement had come into place. In addition to this, there's a Jewish commentator by the name of Rashi. He's a foremost uh, Jewish medieval commentator, and he agrees, based on the timing prophecies in Daniel, that the Messianic era has actually passed, and that Israel missed the timing of her Messiah. And not only this, but um, since they missed the call of the Messiah, the time frame based on the prophecies in Daniel, all that's left for them is, is good works and repentance, since they obviously missed the chance for their Messiah. So these are two Jewish sources which have you know, no Christian influence, no bias or, or, or tendency to being positively Christian, affirming the fact that the era of the Messiah has passed. So this was the first cluster of prophecies. The second had to do with the Jewish people and the Gentile nations. There is a motif that occurs again and again throughout the entire of the Old Testament, a two-pronged one, that the Messiah would be, number one, accepted as Lord amongst the Gentile nations, and then secondly, rejected in large scale by his own Jewish uh, people. While there being a small remnant that affirms, you know, uh, the Messiah, there will still be mass rejection by the Jewish people, the Messiah. So it's this strange paradox of where, you know, the Messiah is accepted by the people that aren't his people, but rejected by the people that are his people. <clears throat> For example, in Genesis 49.10, it would say that the, the scepter shall not descend or depart from Judah, meaning <clears throat> this messianic figure that's promised, he will have the obedience of nations. Throughout Isaiah 42 and 49 and, and 52, there's numerous places where it says the Messiah, for example, will be a light to the Gentile nations, that people on islands would wait on his teachings, that kings would sip in worshipful adoration of him. 
throughout the Psalms, there's this motif that you know the Messiah would have the kingship of the nations, that the the Gentiles would come to acknowledge him as as Lord and as King. And we're faced with this like common motif of of this Messiah Messianic figure is going to have you know the obedience of all these peoples outside you know his his own people, uh, the Jewish people. So here's a, the, the one incontrovertible fact. There are billions of people around the world on every continent that affirm the lordship and kingship of Jesus, acknowledge him as, as, as God and Savior, and know the God of Israel through him. And not only this, um, but for the past two millennia, entire nations and kingdoms and, and uh, entire governments have acknowledged his lordship. Not only this, but name one other person in the entire human race, let alone somebody of Jewish descent who has had billions of Gentile followers, and and, um, he's the only candidate to have fulfilled this, much like the time-related ones. It's not that he's just one of several candidates. He's the only one to be able to fulfill this criteria. Uh, in addition to this, like, for example, in 49, Isaiah 49, 1 through 7, and uh, 53, or chapters 52 through 53, as well as Ezekiel 3, there's going to be a, a, a rejection in mass by the Jewish people. And this was fulfilled as well. While there's a remnant of approximately 100,000 Messianic Jews that still exist, and there are ministries that, for example, exist to reach them, like Jews for Jesus or Chosen People Ministries, uh, in mass there is a large-scale rejection amongst the Jewish people of Jesus as being the Messiah. In fact, um, in certain contexts, it's actually uh, considered uh, deviant to become a follower of Jesus. That it's, um, you know, if somebody in a, a Jewish family, in a Jewish community, it, what happens very often is that somebody, if they become a follower of Jesus in that context, will be, you know, shunned by their family, excommunicated. It's considered a shameful, shameful thing to do. So there is this rejection in mass by the Jewish people. So interestingly, not only is this paradox very strange in which, you know, the Gentiles will affirm the Messiah, but the Jewish people will reject the Messiah. Jesus is the only one to fulfill both of those. And much like, for example, the uh, time-related ones, he's the only candidate. Now, in addition to this, imagine going back 2,000 years ago to um, the foot of the cross uh, at Jesus' crucifixion, seeing him there, having people, you know, scoff at him, mock him. He's dying, you know, as a criminal, as a blasphemer. And then just being telling other people that you, you see this person up here being crucified that, that's dying. He's going to be the most influential person in world history. There are going to be billions of people that acknowledge his lordship. In fact, the very empire that's having him crucified right now will become a, a, a follower, a, a Christianized empire in just a couple hundred years. Now, imagine how improbable that would be. Does that seem like something that could just be simply orchestrated? No, this is something that really could only be undertaken through a divine uh, endeavor. Um, The antecedent probability of this happening is just extremely, extremely low. And and telling somebody in that period of time, you know, this is what subsequently would happen, nobody would believe you. But this side of the cross, 2,000 years later, we can look back and see he's the only one that could have fulfilled this. So that's the second cluster of prophecies. At this point in time, it's good to look back and realize that not only do we have those time-based prophecies that only he could fulfill, but in a cumulative fashion, if we add to this these prophecies that are pertinent towards the Gentiles and Jewish people to this, we're building a strong cumulative case. Multiple strands of evidence are pointing to that Jesus and Jesus alone is this messianic figure who could fulfill this, these lines of prophecies.
Our third cluster is going to be pertinent towards the, the paradoxes and the tensions which exist in the Old Testament about the coming messianic figure and how only Jesus himself, uh, as being Messiah, can fulfill these. Give an example of this. Um, there was a variety of expectations in the Old Testament about what the Messiah was going to be like. Um, you know, throughout the prophets, throughout the Pentateuch, what's interesting about them is that in certain places they seem to be at tension with one another, that it's not really clear how both of them could be fulfilled at the same time. Like, for example, just a couple of these, uh, the Messiah was supposed to lead Israel to greatness, while at the same time the Messiah was supposed to be rejected by Israel. The Messiah was supposed to be this ultimate conquering figure, yet also be killed in weakness. Um, he was supposed to come on the clouds, like in Daniel 7. But then in Zechariah, he's also supposed to be coming into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey. So, you know, both on the clouds, meaning like triumphant and powerful, and then on a donkey, you know, humble and gentle. Um, how is the Messiah supposed to usher in world peace uh, by destroying wicked when Israel herself is incurably evil, as it says in Jeremiah? How is the Messiah supposed to be from you know the line of David and the line of Levi? How is the Messiah, you know, how is God and the Messiah supposed to be king at the same time? And then you know ultimately this one is is actually mentioned in the Gospels. How is the Messiah supposed to be David's son, but also greater than David? This was a, a paradox that Jesus himself brought up to his contemporaries. He referenced Psalm 110, the most cited psalm in the New Testament. And, you know, he asked his, his, his challengers, you know, the, you know, the Messiah's, you know, whose son is the Messiah? And they say, well, he's David's. He's supposed to be David's son, like in 2 Samuel 7. And he says, okay, based on Psalm 110, which David wrote, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Now, he says, how exactly, if this figure is supposed to be David's son, how is he David's Lord at the same time? That doesn't make any sense. Somebody's son isn't their Lord, so what's going on here? And the people looked at this paradox, and they didn't know what to say back. But this was resolved in the Incarnation, that the Messiah is a man, but he's not just a mere man. He's also the Son of God incarnate. So that's how he can be both Davidic, the Davidic son, the, a descendant of David, but also greater than David, in that he is God in the flesh. So that's an example of, like, based on who Jesus is and what he did, how, like, that paradox can be taken care of, how he's David's son and then, yet at the same time, greater than David. Uh, if we look at, for example, intertestamental literature, this is Jewish literature that had been written during, you know, the close of the Old Testament, but it's outside the Bible. They do have attempts where they try to resolve these tensions with different ways of like, well, how do we solve this puzzle? How do we, you know, there's all these different tensions and these kind of like conflicting expectations of what the Messiah is going to do. How do we fulfill this? It's kind of like those brain teasers where, you know, they ask you to do a particular puzzle, but you have to do so within these particular constraints. These are some of these options that, for example, were put forth. Um, for example, uh, we have certain things like in the Dead Sea Scrolls that there would be, you know, two messiahs. There would be a, a kingly and a priestly messiah. And that is how we could fulfill that kind of tension that, you know, the messiah was supposed to be a kingly and priestly figure, a Davidic and Levitical figure, is that there was two messiahs, and that's how it was fulfilled. Um, there's another expectation, like, for example, that the... the can, these prophecies aren't necessarily unconditional, but conditional. Like, for example, the way that um, uh, in, in some Jewish writings, how they try to resolve the Messiah coming on the clouds and also on a donkey at the same time, is that they said, he's not going to do both. Instead, 
depending on whether or not Israel is worthy or unworthy, that'll determine what he's going to do. If Israel is worthy, he'll come on the clouds and, and be triumphant. If she's not worthy, he'll come gentle and lowly on a donkey. And uh, so these are like different ways that, for example, during in- intertestamental literature where they try to resolve these tensions. Now, there's problems with these. There's, there's problems with these explanations. For example, with saying that there's two messiahs, that's adding something to the text that isn't there. That's not necessarily playing fair with the text. That's going out, outside the requirements of there being you know, just one messiah. Instead, positing two messiahs, well, that's not being fair in explaining um, how both of these expectations could be fulfilled. Um, in the example of you know those prophecies being conditional, the ones of, of coming on the clouds or coming on a donkey, that's not fair either because both of those aren't presented as being conditional. They're presented as unconditional. So that explanation doesn't work as well. Instead, it's only by, for example, the Christian explanation of Jesus being the Son of God incarnate, of, of being God in the flesh, of him coming in his first advent as suffering servant and then being resurrected from the dead only to leave and then come back triumphant uh, in power and glory to usher in his, his, his kingdom in a second advent. That's the only way that all these paradoxes and tensions can actually be fulfilled. Um, it's like, for example, putting a particular key into a lock. There's only a certain teeth configuration on that key which will open it. Much in the same way with these expectations and prophecies, there's only a particular configuration of how the Messiah would do things and in what manner that would be able to fulfill these these paradoxes. Be resurrected from the dead and then usher in a second advent. Uh, They basically have to mimic Jesus in every respect in regards to his life, his death, his resurrection, and his very nature of being God in the flesh in order to resolve these tensions. So just like the time-based prophecies, just like the Gentile and Jewish-based prophecies, this is a set of prophecies that only Jesus himself could fulfill based on uh, the criteria of fulfilling these paradoxes and these tensions. Our fourth cluster of prophecies have to do with profile and probability, dealing with you know the odds of, for example, somebody fulfilling the characteristics of the Messiah that are, are uh, laid out in the Tanakh and how the odds of somebody fulfilling them are are too low to be just by mere chance that it has to be a particular individual that we're talking about let me let me expound on what i'm saying here um there are certain profile characteristics of what the messiah will be like and what he'll do like for example his prophesied genealogical descent you know who he descends from what time frame he's going to be born in where he's going to be born in what's his name, and how he's going to die. Those are five such prophecies. Um, And what's unique about these prophecies is that we can apply the discipline of probability to to these, Uh, much in the same way, like, for example, uh, we can with, you know, other things. Uh, For example, one of them. Well, you know, the odds of you guessing that card, you know, I would say it's, it's fairly improbable. But, for example, if you knew beforehand, you know, you saw what card I was thinking of, then it doesn't become um, improbable. Instead, it becomes 100% chance that you would know what was going on. Well, with probability, applying it to this, we can apply such probability to these figures. For example, um, the odds of him, Jesus, being born in Bethlehem. You think of how many billions of people that have ever lived on any nation, in any city, you know, on the earth in the past, you know, a couple thousand years, and then... 
versus the amount of people who have ever lived in Bethlehem. Let's say, um, based on archaeological studies, it's a little under 8,000 people, they've estimated, have ever lived in the city of Bethlehem. So it's 8,000 you know, people that could have possibly been this figure uh, you know, descending from Bethlehem and of anybody that would have ever existed. So that's 8,000 out of, I've seen estimates of 80 billion. But let's be conservative with the probability. Let's make it uh, less improbable. So that way that, you know, there's, we don't look like we're stacking the deck. Then instead we're just saying, hmm, um, it's, it'll be a prophetic number, a probabilistic number that nobody can object to. We could just make it one out of a thousand. Uh, next, like, for example, in Daniel 9, the coming of the Messiah based on the 77s, when the Messiah would actually show up, this anointed figure. Um, think of all the time frames throughout the human history that somebody could be born in, and then you look at this particular sliver of time to which the Messiah could come in. Of the past, you know, thousands and thousands of years the Messiah could come through, what are the odds that he would be in this particular time place? We could probably keep it, you know, in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, depending on how precise we want to get. But just like the Bethlehem prophecy, we can make it one out of a thousand, so that way nobody can object to it. Uh, the pro- prophesied genealogical scent, what are the odds that he would be descended from Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah, through David, all the way down to Zerubbabel of that de- genealogical descent? That um, we can make one out of a thousand as well. It's probably more improbable than that, but since we're being conservative, we'll just keep it at that. Finally, ultimately, uh, in addition to this, his name and his means of, of death. His name, like in Zechariah 3, 8 through 9, and 6, 9 through 15, where it's talking about the uh, priest figure named Joshua, who's supposed to be a type of the Messiah, Joshua being, you know, uh, a transliteration of, you know, Yeshua, Jesus' name, showing that the Messiah would have the name Jesus, and his death by crucifixion, like in Zechariah twelve ten, where, you know, they would look upon Yahweh whom they pierced in Psalm 22, where they say, uh, the psalmist says, you know, they have pierced my hands and feet. We can get both of those, let's say, a one out of a thousand odds as well. Well, we have five different prophecies. We've each assigned different probabilities of one out of a thousand of them being fulfilled. So you've got a one out of a thousand chance that, you know, if you meet, pick one random person throughout human history, there's a one out of a thousand chance that, you know, they would fulfill one of these. Well, now what are the odds are that a person could fill, you know, all five of these. How could we ever find that out? We know if if they fulfilled one of them, it's a one out of a thousand chance. But to do all five, the way that you would figure that out when you have probabilities like this is that you multiply them. So, like, for example, if we were talking about flipping coins, it's a one out of a two chance you'll get a heads for one coin flip. But if you flip that coin once and you get a heads and then you want to flip it again and get a heads, the odds that you would get heads twice is one out of four. It's one half times one half. You have two probabilities you're multiplying. So that's how you do it with this. With this here, you have uh, five prophecies, each with one out of a thousand probability. If you multiply you know, all five of them together, you get one out of uh, ten followed by 14 zeros. That is an astronomically small probability. Uh, that's 10 to the uh, 15th power. Um, you know, there aren't that many people that have even existed within human history. So the odds of, for example, even if we took every single particular person and went through and, and saw if they fulfilled this criteria, it's still improbable that somebody could have fulfilled, fulfilled these. 
So con- continuing forward, we see that you know not only is Jesus the only one to fulfill the prophecies that are relevant towards the timing of the temple, towards the prophecies that are pertinent towards the, the Jewish people and the Gentile nations acknowledging him as Lord, towards the profile of, of somebody who fulfills the paradoxes and tensions. He's also someone who fulfills particular improbable characteristics of the profile of the Messiah. He's the uh, the very, very, very improbable candidate that could fulfill these. And cumulatively, all four of these clusters together form a very formidable case of Jesus being the fulfillment of this messianic figure. But we have one more cluster to look at, and this is a very unique one. It's those pertinent towards the typological shadows and patterns of the Old Testament. I mentioned earlier how the New Testament often uses the Old Testament uh, typologically, meaning that you know there are certain patterns or or, or uh, fit, you know, figures in the Old Testament that are replicated, that are fulfilled within the, the ultimate type, the Messiah. And there's, it's a little bit different. It's a little less rigid criteria than the other four prof- sets of prophecies in that this doesn't have as, as, as solid a criteria or way of doing it, but it's still persuasive in showing that Jesus is, is this fulfillment of this messianic figure. <clears throat> so, we have to be careful here because there's a couple dangers in doing this. For example, uh, there's what's known as parallelomania, which means that you know we're looking at Jesus and we want to see if he fulfills any Old Testament patterns, types, figures, etc. We run the risk of reading patterns and correlations into things where they don't exist. The human mind loves finding patterns and things, and you know we want to be careful that we don't do that. Um, if anybody's ever seen that picture, of, for example. Uh, Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy, where they're they're comparing certain things about their lives, and they're showing like, oh, these are the things they have in common. You know, their their last name has the same number of of letters, and they were both president, and they were both you know assassinated, and you know people are saying, oh wow, there's a weird number of correlations between these two guys. Um, the problem with that though is that you can do that actually with any two presidents. Uh, there's cases where people have taken Washington and Lincoln, or uh, Washington and Kennedy, or Kennedy and, and, and Johnson, and you compare them side by side. Chances are, if you look close enough, you can find just as many patterns or correlations between those two figures. Not only that, but it's even when you do find the correlations and patterns, it doesn't necessarily signify anything. You can keep on finding patterns and patterns and patterns, but the, it doesn't signify that you know one was somehow a prophetic expectation of the other. You're just finding patterns into things um, that are already there. So we want to avoid that when we're looking at the Old Testament and we're looking at the life of Jesus. We, we don't want to read patterns into things that aren't really there. How can we avoid this danger? It's if we take two things into consideration. Number one, we look at broad cumulative patterns. We're not looking at one particular detail. Instead, we're looking at several, several details. And not only are we looking at several, but we're looking at those which are very, very particular or distinct. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. Let's say I'm thinking of a particular group of people. Um, and you know, I'm asking you to guess who they are. And I will give you four hints as to who they are. And um, I say, like, first one of them, you know, like, one of them is named John. Now, based on that alone, based on that small fact alone, that could be anybody. That could be any group of people that you can think of in which it has a participant named John. Um, so that by itself isn't good enough. We have one very vague, or, or how should I say, very broad, singular line of evidence. It's not good enough to have a definitive guess. The second one... I'll tell you, is named Paul. 
you're like, okay, well, maybe that's a little bit closer. I mean, uh, it could be the apostles. It could be, you know, it, it could be, you know, I maybe you have some uncles named them. You know, it, it's a little better than just John by itself, but, you know, uh, it's still pretty vague. I say the third one is named George. And you're like, okay, well, that, that narrows it down a little bit. I know it can't be referring to the apostles since there's no apostle named George. And, you know, um, maybe maybe there's, you know, but it's, it's still too vague. Even with three names right there, three names, it's still not good enough. And then I close it with, um, there's another one. His name is Ringo. You know immediately who I am talking about. After the first three names, there's still some vagueness and ambiguity, but once you get to that fourth, very distinct, clear name, you know that I'm talking about the Beatles. You notice what I did there is that I kept increasing the number of names, I kept increasing the numbers of correlations, and finally it got to an element, the name Ringo, which is a very rare, very distinct name. And paired together with those three other names, the correlation between who I'm thinking of and those hints becomes so clear that if I told you it wasn't the Beatles, you would say I'm being disingenuous, that it would have to be the Beatles, that there's nobody else that could fulfill those particular characteristics or the, those particular names, and that I wasn't being necessarily fair in this, that I was you know, being tricky in, in how I was conveying uh, who I was thinking of. Well, that's what we want to do with the Old Testament with when we're talking about types and expectations that are typological in nature. We want them to be cumulative, and we want them to be very, very distinct. I'm going to go over one particular case example of this, what's known as the Akedah by the Jewish people, or the binding of Isaac. Um, for those of you who know, uh, in Genesis 22, God uh, asked Abraham to take Isaac and to sacrifice him on uh, Mount Moriah. And then as Abraham was about to do it, God stopped him. You know, an angel came forth and stopped him and said they provided a ram. Now, this passage in Genesis, in, in chapter 22, is very interesting because it's, number one, it's quite bizarre that God would ask a man to sacrifice his son. He explicitly uh, denounces uh, child sacrifice elsewhere in the Pentateuch. And secondly, there's nothing about this account that you see either before or after. It says, like, hey, guess what? God's actually going to do something like this in the future. Spoiler alert, this is a foreshadowing. It's just an account that just exists within the Genesis text that's just there. So there's no expectation that's around it. However, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, this account becomes very, very startling. It's kind of like um, when you have a cipher and you have a coded text, and you let's say I bring forth you know a bunch of, of uh, scrambled letters and everything like that to you, which doesn't make a very clear message. And I ask you, is there anything that's there? And you would say, well, no, I don't see anything. And I bring a cipher, which is a way that you decode a text, and I say, just move every letter, one letter to the letter previously, and then a clear message appears. You couldn't say that there wasn't you know, something there beforehand. Instead, it was looking at you, hidden in plain sight. It was only after you received that cipher, or in this instance, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, did this become clear. So this is one of those prophecies that only became clear after fulfillment. Just like the example that I mentioned earlier with John, Paul, George, and Ringo, there are distinctive and multiple elements within this account which correlate with the life of the Messiah and his death and resurrection. First of all, you have a father sacrificing his son which is an extraordinarily distinct event in and of itself. This is not something which is common without, you know, um, people within antiquity, let alone, you know, biblical figures. 
uh, you have a father who's willing to sacrifice his son, uh, and which Abraham, you know, is doing. Second of all, Isaac at this age was in his early 20s, and, and Abraham was up there in age. Isaac, when he's going up Mount Moriah with Abraham, and he's realizing what's going on, that he's the sacrifice, um, you know, he, he's not dumb. He knows what's going to happen to him, that he's going to be killed. So rather than running off, rather than, you know, he could have avoided the situation if he wanted to, he's instead being compliant. He's being an obedient son, much in the same way that Jesus was being an obedient son to the Father's will. In addition to this, this is all taking place in the context of being a sacrifice, much in the same way that, for example, Jesus' death just wasn't haphazard or something that happened randomly, just like Isaac's death was going to be. It was for a sacrificial reason that this was happening for, um, for a sacrifice. Also, a very distinct element in this is that if you look at the Genesis account, um, he's taking Isaac up Mount Moriah. He's going to sacrifice him. His servants at the base of the hill ask him, you know, where, where are you guys going? And he tells them, we are going up to the mount to worship, and we will be back. There's something very subtle there. Notice he didn't say, we are going up to the hill, and I will be back. Because that's what would have happened if Isaac remained dead, if he had been killed and left up there. But instead he says, we will be coming back. Making it clear that he's expecting Isaac somehow to survive this interlude, either by A, what happened actually, that um, Isaac would be spared from death, or B, that he would be resurrected from the dead, that somehow Isaac wasn't going to remain dead. Because just like Jesus, he is the son of prop of prophecy. He's the son of promise. He's the one through whom the, the seed, the messianic seed, is supposed to descend from. And Abraham reasoned, well, he can't stay dead because how else is God going to fulfill his promises? Well, if he can't stay dead, then that means somehow he's going to be alive. So just like with Jesus, not only is this a, there's this um, expectation of, for example, you know, Isaac dying, but there's also this expectation that he's going to be brought back to life. So all these very distinct patterns of a father sacrificing his son, a son being obedient unto death, all of this in the context of it being a sacrifice, and then ultimately the sacrifice himself surviving through death are replicated and mirrored within the messianic task of Jesus being crucified, buried, and resurrected from the dead. This is one of those very, very distinct multiple-line correlate patterns of a typological prophecy. But there's many of these throughout the Old Testament. For example, in the temple and the sacrifices, how those look forward to uh, the Messiah being just like the temple in that uh, you know, that God would have his presence amongst his people in the temple. The Messiah would be God having his presence amongst his people in the incarnation. Uh, different biblical figures, like for example, David being a type of Jesus, that he would be, you know, uh, the king of Israel, that Joseph being a, a, a type as well, that in the life of Joseph, first he was rejected amongst his own brethren, and then, you know, they sell him off, they have him in their minds, they kill him off, and then secondly, later on in life, they come to him, and he's their king, he's over them, he's the second in command over Egypt, and he's their savior. Different patterns like this exist again and again throughout different biblical figures in the life of Moses, on the life of Joseph, etc. In addition to uh, temple, the temple and biblical figures and other events, there's theological motifs which also are very, very relevant. Like, for example, the Messiah came and lived in the same manner that the people of God did as well, which is he experienced suffering before his exaltation. For people like, for example, like David, even though he was announced king of Israel, he had to suffer, you know, 
rejection he had to for example he was chased by Saul almost killed he had to be on the lamb um, he didn't receive the, his full kingship he had to suffer and be tested beforehand the exact same thing with Joseph as well he didn't automatically become you know the one that would be rule over his brothers instead he was imprisoned falsely he was sold into slavery he suffered you know at the betrayal at the hands of his own brothers he had to suffer and be tested before his own exaltation the Messiah is just like that. He came amongst his people. He was rejected by his own. He was uh, betrayed and then abandoned by his, his closest friends and then ultimately died by crucifixion. But subsequently, he was vindicated by God in his resurrection. And then when he comes back in glory, he will experience the fullness of, of his exaltation. He will be, you know, um, overall. Now, these motifs occur again and again. You know, it, it wouldn't, you know, be fair if the Messiah just showed up on scene with a silver spoon in his mouth and was automatically made king. Instead, he's just like the people of Israel. He's just like, um, for example, God's dealing with his own people. He suffers prior. He is humiliated prior to receiving blessing. He, he, he suffers and is humiliated before his exaltation. So this is another example of, of patterns being fulfilled within the Messiah. So... We're coming to our close here of this study. We've looked at five different elements, different aspects of how the Messiah fulfilled different Old Testament expectations. Uh, prophecies pertinent towards the temple and his timing, him being the only candidate. Prophecies towards the Jewish people and the Gentile nations, how he's the only one to have worldwide adherence of Gentiles, bring knowledge to the God of Israel around the world, yet suffering rejection at the hands of his own Jewish people, that he was the only one to resolve certain paradoxes and tensions within the Old Testament based on how he performed his messianic task, that he's the only improbable figure that could fulfill particular characteristics were prophesied of the Messiah, and then ultimately how he fulfills the types, patterns, and all these shadows of what the Messiah would be like in his own life. This provides a very clear cumulative fashion, allows us to identify the Messiah as being Jesus. These typical objections don't work, and that ultimately these uh, converging lines of evidence form a very strong apologetic for the Christian faith. And I just want to close on one particular point here. While this serves us in a po powerful apologetic, I think it says two particular things about the nature of how God deals with his people. Number one, the fulfillment of these prophecies shows that God is ultimately faithful, that he expresses fidelity to his promises towards his people. And then secondly, if we look at the very panoramic, wide, and mind-blowing ways that God does this, he fulfills, you know, his prophecies, his promises in manners that are beyond expectation. So I leave you folks with, I hope, a clear understanding of how the Messiah fulfills the Old Testament. Thank you very much for listening in, and have a blessed day.